Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global health. Well, we're sharing the mic with frontline aides again. It's World AIDS Day, and we've got a packed episode for you. I'm joined by a fantastic crew from the Frontline AIDS Partnership, and my co-host today is Leora Pillay. Um, Leora is the uh, uh, HIV Prevention Advocacy Lead at Frontline AIDS. She is one of our regular co-hosts. Leora, welcome back. It's great to see you. How are you? Thanks, Ben. I'm good in really hot South Africa, but really well. Thank you. And it's wonderful. We can see you. We can hear you. Are you in the middle of load shedding by any chance? Yes, indeed. We are. It's become the norm. But it we're has. carrying on. <laughs> well, and, and for those of our viewers and listeners around the world who don't know it, load shedding is a very polite, I guess, way of describing power cuts, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, uh, basically cutting a load. Um, but a recent joke I heard the other day was that it should actually be, we should rather call, call it the power hour when you actually have power instead of load shedding because there's so little load to shed. <laughs> well, we've got everything crossed that, that for our conversation today, we'll, we'll have you uh, loud and clear and, and visible. And we have two absolutely fantastic guests joining, Leora and me. The first is Dr. Lillian Mwakiosi, who is the Executive Director at Dare for Progress in Tanzania. Lillian, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Asante sana. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm super delighted to be here. So could you just tell us a little bit about, about Dare and uh, what your work is in Tanzania? Definitely. Um, so I work with an organization called DARE, and we do a lot of work around promoting community engagement in making sure that um, solutions that are being uh, developed in the country, more specifically when it comes to HIV um, and sexual reproductive health, truly speak to uh, the needs of uh, the communities that we are serving. We've done a lot of advocacy-related work with adolescent girls and young women around making sure that their um, leadership is well um, uh, visible in the national HIV response. We've done also um, a lot of work around making sure that civil society engage in important decision-making platforms when it comes to HIV. And um, recently, we've been doing work around making sure that civil societies are aware of the global um, HIV prevention 2025 targets, and we're part of actually making that a success in our countries and uh, putting an effect to the regional efforts to reach them as well. Wow, that's a lot. And um, and particularly coming out of the COVID era, the, uh, the importance of a sort of a surround sound approach for uh, services for adolescent girls and, and young women, that's so important. Definitely. And our other guest down the road in Malawi is um, Simon Sekweze, who is the executive director of Pakacheri IHDC. Uh, and he, um, you're joining us from where, Simon? Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, yes, my name is uh, Simon Sekweze, joining you from the warm heart of Africa, uh, Malawi specifically in the commercial city of Blantyre. And uh, as you've put it, uh, you, I'm the executive director for Pakachere, 
Yeah, the full name is Pakajere Institute of Health and Development Communication. And by the way, uh, Pakachere uh, is two is in two parts. Kachere is a fig tree. And when you put the pa and put it Pakachere, it means under the fig tree. So that's the meaning of the word. So the fig tree traditionally is a place where people come together to resolve issues, make decisions, and then move on with a progressive life. So that's the meaning of Pakachere. But as an organization, um, we are basically a social and behavior change communications NGO. Uh, but in the past years, we have uh, also been providing HIV prevention services uh, to key and vulnerable populations, uh, especially female sex workers. So we uh, operate dropping centers uh, where we provide specialized services uh, for female sex workers, where we are providing integrated HIV and sexual and reproductive health services and uh, one of the aspects that we work with also is uh, in advocacy where we, we are working with frontline aids and as uh, Lillian uh, 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 said it uh, we are involved in the HIV uh, prevention 2025 roadmap where we are working with our governments to make sure that we achieve those targets ambitiously by 2025 thank you thank you and I, I guess given the crazy state of this world we could really do with a lot more fig trees, right? Oh, exactly. <laughs> uh, Leora, if I could kick off with you, we're up we're around World AIDS Day. Uh, Frontline AIDS is um, announcing the release of uh, some reports. Can you talk a bit about those? What's so important? Frontline AIDS has undertaken um, a project of doing 10 HIV prevention and accountability reports. And essentially, these reports are incredibly important tools because they provide the qualitative community perspective and the lived experiences of civil society and communities in relation to HIV prevention in each country. So these reports... Um, sit next to the data that we receive from UNAIDS every year, which has recently been released, and basically tells the story of that data. So why is it that, for example, sex workers have an HIV prevalence of X? Um, or why is it that certain populations are being left behind in some countries? Um, these reports tell the community perspectives and struggles and challenges, but equally speak to progress and partnership between civil society and government. Um, so they're really, really important because they basically tell the full story of HIV prevention and the status of HIV in each country. Because, of course, HIV prevention has uh, sort of been almost the, uh, the Cinderella of the AIDS response. Despite our very best mm -hmm. efforts over 30, 40 years, we haven't really been able to break the back of new infections. And, 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 and I wonder, um, I mean, maybe Simon, I could, could start with you on this, this sort of more general question. Here we are at the um, end of 2023, moving into 2024. The world has a lot of issues on its plate. Um, how do you see um, the attention being given to HIV? Are we are we still in the top list of priorities or do you really see um, fatigue happening at the national, regional and international level? Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Ben. And 
<clears throat> this is a very uh, thought-provoking question. And I think it's a question that uh, uh, more often than not, uh, we ask about it in meetings. And uh, <clears throat> so one of the languages that we use is um, let's, think, let's think outside the box. But at the end, we don't think outside the box. We think the same. And that's why you see that we talk about we are making progress, but uh, the speed at which we... <clears throat> But the speed at which you are making that progress is very slow because most of the times it is business as usual. So we have been talking about uh, HIV for years. And uh, in the process, I think the issues of fatigue, if you look at uh, uh, the funding that is available, it's uh, slowly becoming a challenge. Uh, when you look at uh, the countries, uh, countries like Malawi, uh, they're very dependent uh, on donors to support HIV prevention uh, interventions or programming. Without donor donor support, then that becomes a challenge. So in the end, you find that most of um, our programming uh, is mostly driven by donor policies because they have got the money and they've got the right to say, this is what you need to do. But at the end, we need to now start looking at how will uh, locally driven uh, solutions uh, look like and uh, this is where you see that the importance of civil society, uh, local civil society organizations coming together, being supported technically to look at issues from their local perspective and look at how we can influence our governments uh, to start thinking about HIV as an urgent public health issue that is not yet over, but something that we must work with agency. At the moment, we're talking about 2025, and you look at the targets that have been sent and uh, if you look at the, uh, the financing, uh, you look at uh, the pace at, at which we are working, we ask the same question to say, are we going to get there? As much as we're doing the progress, there's so much that we need to do so that we can reach the 2025 or making HIV AIDS end by 2013. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Simon. And, and, and so I guess, Lillian, this is, I suppose, one of the real values of these accountability reports because it gives you the tools to advocate with health authorities, with the government, and presumably with, with funders and supporters. Yeah, definitely. I think um, this is where um, our reports uh, come in handy because sometimes um, alone you cannot do much, but when you have a document that is able to circulate and reach as many as possible, including civil societies and all the relevant key actors in our respective countries and beyond, to get to read about the experiences of communities and being able to actually pick out solutions that are proposed by the communities as well. I think it's one way that we can actually get to a point where we're developing um, uh, prevention programs, prevention investments that are really uh, tailored to the needs of that community. And maybe just to uh, reiterate what uh, Simon said from a young women perspective as well, I feel like if we look at the numbers of new um, infections from adolescents and youth, and more specifically, adolescent girls and young women aged 15 to 24 in most of our countries, it clearly states that we are not doing enough. And there's so much to do and learn from these particular groups as well uh, to make sure that we come up with solutions and do the right investments at this point to making sure that we're not missing uh, the point of where we should address and put more emphasis at the moment. So, so I guess that the... Um two of the 10 reports were done in Malawi and Tanzania. 
Um, Leora, where else have the accountability reports been developed? Um, now you're putting me on the spot to remember the countries and not forget them. Um, of course. But we've, done them, <laughs> we've done them in Angola, um, Eswatini, Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and India, in addition to Tanzania and Malawi. Um, and I mean, there's some really interesting um, themes and top line findings that um, we can really, um, you know, sh it, it speaks to what Simon and Lillian were talking about in terms of we've still got a really long way to go until we get to um, near the 2025 targets. Um, for example, seven out of 10 of the countries um, actually still criminalize same-sex sexual acts. And we know that uh, structural issues and structural barriers create one of the largest, uh, you know, uh, barriers to accessing services for key populations. And it doesn't even, um, and it doesn't sort of uh, even recognize the intersections of key populations of LGBT communities with sex workers, etc. So um, these reports really demonstrate quite a quite a, a challenging picture. Ben. Could could we just pause perhaps and talk a bit about um, uh, the uh, the it, the restrictive um, laws that are uh, beginning to be applied to um, uh, at-risk populations? Obviously, the backwash for everything in um, in this this year has been the legislation in Uganda, um, and I suppose what really strikes me is that. You know, you you talk about the the countries uh, that are in these reports. Well, a good number of them turn out to be um, former British colonies, and I wonder to the extent to which you know there's still a need to disentangle um, countries from the uh, from the colonial um, the colonial past. Is that is that something that you see, or or, or are there new um, new challenges uh, coming? I think um, there's been a, uh, from all of the reports and all of the analysis that we've done across um, the, particularly the nine countries in Africa, we can see that there's a very strong, uh, organized and well-funded transnational anti-rights movement that's basically moving across Africa. Um, and Uganda is one of the countries in which they've been very successful. Um, and they're moving across creating um, sort of uh, obviously opposition against LGBT communities um, and key populations in general, which then manifests itself into the most, you know, horrendous laws as we see um, with the Anti-Homosexuality Act. But it's also manifesting in countries in other ways. Um, we can see that sexual reproductive health and rights of young women and youth are severely being affected in a lot of countries comprehensive sexuality education is being stopped um, and uh, abortion always been an issue, but obviously that's also on the table here. And so I think what we do see is that this anti-rights movement is in some ways uh, worked so well underground in a lot of African countries that it's derailing a lot of the progress that we've made in HIV prevention. Um, and we've really got to tackle it and quickly, or else I think we're going to find ourselves in a very difficult situation, 
not only for LGBT communities, but for youth, adolescent girls and young women across the continent. Well, yes, absolutely. And of course, you know, one of the other big backwashes that we're dealing with at the end of 2023 is the future of PEPFAR and, um, you know, concerns, particularly from the uh, uh, parts of the U.S. Congress around its um, interrelation with uh, sexual and reproductive health services. But um, I wonder, Lillian, if um, if what uh, Leora has just described resonates uh, with you in Tanzania, which of course is a a fascinating country with both uh, German and British um, colonial history, and and an extraordinary, uh, perhaps success story of um, uh, certainly religious uh, tolerance and getting together. How do you see? Um, what happened in Uganda impacting Tanzania? I think uh, primarily what has been happening in Uganda would naturally uh, spike some form of reactions in any space that is uh, conservative. And I think my country is one of those. So we have a lot of legal and structural barriers that in one way or the other would uh, always affect how services are reaching out to the, uh, you know, the marginalized communities, the um, hard to reach communities. And I think during such times, you feel the pressure getting even higher and it becomes challenging for some of these communities to access services. And we know very well at the end of the day, for us to be able to control HIV and any other actually infections in our communities, we need to make sure that we're able to actually reach out to each and every person and making sure that we put in place equitable means to making sure that health services are able to reach the entire community without um, worrying about um, maybe they will face some sort of like um, uh, societal-based struggles or uh, legal barriers and the likes. There's there's another theme that that seems to be emerging generally, and that is a, a sort of a, a res growing restriction on uh, civil society space. And by that, I mean the ability for civil society to play um, a full role in helping design, set, and then um, hold accountable the, um, the authorities that are responsible for services. Um, and, and, and I wonder, Simon, if uh, that is something that um, from, the, uh, from what you've seen from the reports, whether this is this is something we should be concerned about, that, that frontline, aid par frontline AIDS partners um, are noticing this. Uh, yes, Ben, I think that is uh, an area that uh, we need to uh, worry about. And uh, for my country, Malawi, I will look at that uh, issue to fold. Um, if you look at the space for KP-led organization, that is the space that is facing a lot of challenges in terms of uh, let them unleash their full potential uh, to talk about their rights, access to services, uh, because of the restrictive laws, uh, especially for the LGBTIQ communities where they cannot even register, register them, themselves as eligible NGOs that can operate in the country. And, and Simon, moment, just to just to dive in, you mentioned KPs. Yes. That's key populations, right? Yes, key populations. So uh, for Malawi, when you look at the legal environment, uh, uh, key populations, we look at the female sex workers, 
because female sex work in Malawi is not illegal. There are just aspects of female sex work that are legalized where the police would arrest the sex workers uh, for rogue and vagabond, uh, like uh, maybe uh, if they're just roaming the street, <clears throat> then they could take that as uh, a crime. For LGBTIQ uh, community, that is where we have uh, a problem, where the constitution, even the penal code, does not recognize the LGBTIQ community. And uh, the other challenge that we are looking at now is that uh, LGBTI-led communities cannot get registered. Either they should register in a different name, but not as an organization that is fighting for rights of the LGBTI community. And then finally, the other challenge that we have is uh, when you look at our National AIDS Commission, the government will say our mandate is mostly to ensure that they are accessing uh, HIV prevention and uh, sexual and reproductive health services. But to now join uh, the bandwagon to look at how do we make sure that their rights are protected, then that is shifted to the Malawi Human Rights Commission, which at the moment, moment is not as uh, involved as we are uh, wanting to. So that's one thing that we're also looking at, uh, to bring in the Malawi Human Commission uh, to make sure that we address the issue of the shrinking space for civil society organization uh, to be involved with fidelity in uh, ensuring that everybody is accessing services, but also everybody is enjoying human rights as uh, it is required by uh, the uh, human rights law internationally. Gosh, I'm... Leora, is this, is this something Frontline AIDS is seeing across all of the uh, the countries in these reports? Most definitely. Um, in some countries, um, it's a lot more formal than in others in terms of the laws that restrict civic space. Um, but it definitely is a worrying trend uh, and it makes advocacy in countries and, as you mentioned, accountability almost impossible for civil society organizations and particularly communities. Um, and I think that's the importance of these reports um, where it's really telling the story of why the infections are as they are and what communities and civil society, such as Simon and Lillian, who work directly with governments, you know, what they experience every day. Um, we actually, uh, for these 10 reports, we um, consulted 126 organizations across the 10 countries. And so um, it's really strong and uh, powerful, but also very scary to see um, that all of these organizations are worried about civic space. And it shows a very worrying trend that um, we need to address urgently. Okay, so I've got to ask... Um, any good news? Any silver linings in the reports that that stand out that um, uh, should give us optimism and hope for the future? There definitely is silver linings. I think I'll hand over to Simon to give some for Malawi. Uh, we've got some examples from um, Angola, for example, who um, decriminalised um, same-sex sexual acts um, as well as sex work in the last four years. I'm one of the rare African countries that have taken that move. But um, I'm keen to hear um, Simon Simon's view on Malawi progress, because it isn't all doom and gloom. You're right. Uh, thank you, Leona and Ben. Um, 
I think what I can say is um, we are making progress. And um, I think if you look at where we're coming from uh, when AIDS was uh, uh, discovered to now, I think we have seen tremendous uh, progress in terms of um, uh, reducing new HIV infections, but not to the level that we uh, would like because of the various challenges that we are talking about. And uh, there are several areas that we do acknowledge uh, that we have done well in the areas that we think uh, we should do better. For example, in Malawi, as we have been uh, looking at how do we make sure that the rights of uh, the LGBTIQ are, are protected. Uh, uh, one of the things that Malawi has done as progress um, was that um, uh, the president of Malawi then uh, issued a meritorium uh, which put a temporary uh, relief uh, to prevent arrest of any member of the LGBTIQ uh, community. So this is a platform that we are using now uh, to make sure that they are protected, but it is not law. Uh, anyone can come in and reverse that, and it, it means we'll go back to the uh, same uh, situation. That is where we are looking at uh, our laws and how they can be very protective uh, of the LGBTIQ community. And uh, we have also seen uh, from the way the Malawi uh, government through the National Health Commission uh, has been very positive in terms of ensuring that we finalize uh, the HIV prevention accountability report. We started it before they started, and they joined in and started supporting us. And that is where you see the strength of uh, CSOs, because if we had, did not start early, I think at this time, maybe we would have been saying Malawi has not yet finalized its uh, report. So we have worked very well uh, with the National AIDS Commission and the Minister of Health. They are acknowledging the uh, challenges that we have, and uh, they say they are ready to uh, sort of... Uh, uh, be vigilant and make sure that we're addressing. But we know that without CSOs pushing, then we're not going to get there. So there's light at the end of the tunnel, but the push is supposed to be there because otherwise, if you don't, the pace at which government works is different than the pace at which civil society works. So that's where the importance of, of civil society is coming in. And uh, our mobilizing of the 145 plus local NGOs that Leora has mentioned is just to make sure that we've got strong coalitions in country to take advantage of where we have made progress and also look at where we've got weaknesses, how to make sure that where things are not working, we push and hold those accountable to make sure that come 2025, we achieve the targets that have been said by your needs. I, I sense that the HIV response driven by communities is alive and well in um, Malawi. Simon, I can I can hear and feel your your passion, um, and I I wonder, um, Lillian, how you look at this through the lens of providing services and opportunities for teenage girls and and young women, um, the the uh, the home of a shot in the arm podcast, sharing the mic is the Global Listening Project, which has uh, looked at changing social norms in. Uh, the country next door, Kenya, and uh, across the way in Nigeria, and as well as challenges coming out of COVID, there do seem to be some opportunities and some real um, enthusiasm and, um, and 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 strength and optimism from the new generation of um, young women. Is that something that you are seeing as well? 
Yeah, I think I would say it's quite universal. I feel like we're living in a community currently where um, especially adolescents and youth are work, uh, are work, are work and are willing to actually take action and be a part of the movements that we are having, whether it's HIV prevention, sexual reproductive health related, um, movements. And, um, one thing I can speak, uh, for Tanzania would have been how adolescent girls and young women specifically have been the eye of the National AIDS Commission. We call it um, Tanzania Commission for um, AIDS. And I think most stakeholders in the country when it comes to HIV uh, prevention primarily, as I had mentioned earlier, um, new infections among this group have been really high and there have been different uh, mechanisms uh, uh, put in place and some we continue to influence which um, create an environment where there is comprehensive sexuality education available in primary schools and secondary schools, uh, but also um, the age of consent, more particularly for um, accessing HIV services, was lowered in 2019 uh, from 18 years to 15 years, allowing younger people below 18 to be able to access services uh, without parental consent. And we have seen efforts to also making sure that um, young women are prioritized when it comes to prevention services. Uh, for instance, the introduction of pre-exposure prophylaxis really made sure that young women are at the forefront. And actually, in my country, adolescent girls and young women are part of the key and vulnerable groups and are, are given the priority when it comes to HIV prevention as well. Well, what a nice um, uh, bridge, um, Lillian, you've given us into the uh, new uh, HIV prevention technologies. Um, of course, you know, shot in the arm, we're interested in equity and innovation. Um, and maybe at the 38,000 foot, um, Leora, what are you seeing in terms of, well, I think interest in the, uh, the emerging technologies that are coming through for HIV prevention, but then also the accessibility and whether people really feel that these are going to be products that are going to be available. But which of the new technologies are you really interested in? Um, most definitely Cabalet, um, which is the long-acting injectable prep. Um, and then the Depivirin ring for women, um, which is the first discrete um, ring, vaginal prep ring, essentially, um, for young women and girls to use um, and will last up to 28 days. Um you, the report really showed an interest and a a um a want of countries to have these technologies but what we did find was that for each of those technologies only four out of the 10 countries had actually registered the technology some countries had it under review um with a lot of the concerns being around uh sort of sustainability so it links a lot with what Simon has mentioned around funding. I think a big concern in the registration of these new uh, PrEP technologies is around funding. Who's going to fund this? Um, and how are we going to sustain it if we start rollout in each country? Um, and I think civil society is really trying to push um, for what we could see in the reports to just make sure that using the lessons from oral prep, having civil society and communities at the forefront of the rollout is key. And so trying to really advocate for the registration of these technologies 
um, and of course the funding for them, but thereafter making sure that civil society and communities lead the implementation of those technologies um, to those that need it most. It's so interesting that you highlight the issue of registration of these new long-acting um, injectable HIV treatment and prevention um, uh, uh, technologies. And it, it's interesting because it's both the responsibility of manufacturers, but it's also the responsibility of governments. And, um, and I just wonder, um, you know, both for Tanzania and, and Malawi, the extent to which you see national um, leadership um, around really pushing as far as possible to getting to the 2025 and then 2030 targets really to, you know, really get HIV under control. I won't say end the AIDS epidemic because mm -hmm. I don't know personally how that's going to be done, but certainly really get it to a level of, of control. And um, Simon, maybe starting with you. Um, basically, I think uh, it is something that uh, we have already talked about in terms of um, the agency that our governments must put uh, when we are having uh, these uh, new HIV uh, prevention technologies. Um, uh, I was uh, just interested when Liwana was talking about uh, the Kabale and the uh, uh, the driven ring. Uh, for Malawi, you see that, yes, at the moment, we are in the process of uh, rolling out an implementation science for CAB-LA, uh, which is going to start in January or February of 2024. Uh, it's going to be uh, an implementation science that will be run for uh, two years before the actual uh, rollout. Already, we are seeing that as a um, a limitation because it would just be about maybe 900 plus people, 900, 900 thereabouts who are going to access as an implementation science. We have created um, like a demand because everybody is excited about Kabele, people are asking about it, but for two years, people are going to be waiting and uh, only 900 will be on that implementation science. What does it mean to HIV prevention, but also meeting the 2025? in 2030 targets because Kabele is being looked at as um, uh, one of the most important HIV, HIV prevention technologies. When you talk about the uh, depriving ring, uh, up to now, uh, as a country, we have not yet embraced depriving ring. Uh, the country has knowledge, acknowledged it as an, another choice for HIV prevention for women but it cannot be rolled out until a cost-benefit analysis is conducted in Malawi, but also to look at beyond the current uh, funding by PEFA or Global Fund, who is going to sustain it. So issues of financing are still coming in. So you see that there's so many things coming up uh, that are acting as barriers towards us achieving the 2025 and 2030 barriers. And we need to be looking at if the prevailing ring is going to be rolled out, how will the funding look like? Because at the moment you look at Kabele, which requires also a lot of funding. But what we are saying is, as government, we need to take responsibility of our people and make sure that we are also looking at how government must be funding some of these HIV prevention technology. Because at the end, if we prevent our people, 
then the government is going to be applauded other than depending more uh, on the uh, donors. So we need to be balancing up and looking at uh, are we being fair to the people and providing the right choices? The right choices are there, but we're being limited by uh, maybe a process of decision-making which is very slow and uh, at the end compromising the lives of many women and men who could have accessed these new technologies. Oh, Lillian, I mean, it feels like two sides of a a, a coin, a sort of a slightly... Um vicious circle that, you know, the interest is in the high tech, uh, complicated to make, um, injectable, but we have the depivirine ring. Um, and that's particularly important for teenage girls and young women. And it's just that, you know, now we're seeing the real world data demonstrating its impact. Um, it should be much more of an appealing option, uh, certainly to funders and policymakers, don't you think? Absolutely. I think that should have been the case. However, maybe I would share from the perspective of my country, the situation is a bit different. Um, currently, we, unlike Malawi, we do not have Kavalei approved in Tanzania. And unfortunately, neither um, the Piver and Vagina Ring. And um, the conversations have been ongoing over the years, uh, thanks to civil society for constantly being there to bring the conversations when we are in spaces where we have some key stakeholders and decision makers to raise concerns and ask questions and trying to find out um, what the fate would look like um, for Tanzania. Seemingly, uh, Kabele uh, is more acceptable at the moment and is likely perhaps to be approved before um, the favoring vagina ring because we have also um, uh, observed some concerns from um, our regulatory approvers uh, with regards to... Um, the pivoting vaginal ring, uh, some of them have been addressed and some are still being addressed. So um, we're still waiting to hear. But like you have mentioned, um, HIV prevention, I mean, is really key and HIV infections do not wait. So the more time we are buying to making these tools available, uh, the more we're failing young women. We need to consider um, making sure that they are available with urgency, but also most importantly, choice. It's not about what uh, religious leaders are thinking. It's not about what um, decision makers are thinking at this point. It's about the lives of girls and women. And we need to make sure that as excited as we are to actually have the pivoting vaginal ring accessible, we are able to actually factor that in in our decisions and making sure that it comes to the country in a timely manner. And I think another concern that would be there with regards to the pivoting ring is around um, funding. We know very well that most of our countries are donor dependent. And if you have some of the uh, funders, actually large funding um, agencies who are not uh, in a position to uh, procure, for instance, the people in vagina ring, it becomes really harder uh, at a country level, knowing very well our countries can only give um, little so far when it comes to prevention to making sure that we are able to actually access and make sure uh, more young women are able to access these new prevention technologies. So there's a lot of work to do with domestic resource mobilization, but also um, calling out for more um, investments in making sure that uh, beyond just research, once we have these new tools, they're easily accessible and choice is the center of all these decisions as well as communities. So Leora, uh, are there other are there other themes that we have missed 
um, we haven't spoken about in today's podcast that come out of these accountability reports that you feel our listeners and viewers should should really know about? I think Lilia mentioned the age of consent, but I, I want to flag that because I think it's a really important issue for young people across Africa. Um, in the majority of the countries that we've done the reports in, we found a complete disconnect between the age of consent for HIV testing and the age of consent for sexual and reproductive health services, which is obviously very con you know, contradictory because if you uh, are assuming that a young person is having sex, unprotected sex, and needs access to an HIV test, they equally need access to contraception. Um, and so those two ages should match, but they don't in the majority of countries. Um, but, you know, there are some countries moving um, in a positive direction um, with only a few countries having 18 age restrictions for age of consent. Um, and we found that four countries um, uh, in Africa actually had age of consent for HIV at 12 years old, which um, we think is 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 the gold standard and should be the case across all countries. But I think that's a complication um, that we've picked up across a lot of the a lot of the the reports and across the countries, and it contradicts with a lot of the push in Africa to do AGYW HIV focused programming, which has SRH, uh, sorry, sexual and reproductive health integrated in it. When the age of consent for both of those contradict one another, yeah. So that's also one of the big problems. What, what an extraordinary finding. I mean, I, I imagine that many of us had assumed that, um, you know, it would be, it's not so much a question of consent, it's availability of HIV testing. But that's a really important finding. So looking forward, what are you going to do with these reports? Um, Lillian, what, what is your strategy for Tanzania with the accountability report? Um, I think primarily we cannot do this alone. We need to have as many voices um, involved in this process as possible. So one of the primary ways that we aim to actually utilize the reports is to make sure that we have as many civil society organizations and that's communities aware of what we have um, collected so far. But also most importantly, these are tools to actually spike conversations and making sure that we are able to actually send out um, the recommendations to the right um, channels, including key decision makers, uh, our national AIDS commissions, and making sure that we're able to actually have that space and conversations to actually see where we can best um, improve. As I learned recently, a phrase that I really liked, um, we are all building the same house as civil society as well as our decision makers in the country. So it's all about making sure that we find that common ground where we can sit, go through the reports together, acknowledge some of the issues and experiences that have been shared and actually look for opportunity to partner and collaborate to move further and making sure that we create a home that is complete and safe for everybody. Love it. And, and and Simon, over in Malawi, how will you use the accountability reports? Uh, ben, I think uh, if you just look at the name, accountability reports, uh, it means quite a lot. 
uh, in terms of uh, how uh, we are going to work with uh, all the responsible parties uh, to make sure that the commitments that we have made in the HIV uh, Prevention 2025 uh, uh, reports are put uh, into practice and that come 2025, we have actually done what we have committed. And this is the more reason why the development of the HIV Prevention Roadmap uh, has been consultatively done where we have been involved as civil society organizations uh, but also the Minister of Health and uh, the National AIDS Commission. So these reports are going to be used uh, to track progress across all the 10 action points uh, because within it we have embedded a very strong accountability process and uh, our recommendations in the uh, HIV prevention accountability reports is pointing at the most important areas that our government, the Ministry of Health, and National Health Commission, but also ourselves, the civil society organizations, must act on to make sure that come 2025, we are talking about something different. So as Lillian has said, we have mobilized civil society. We have very strong coalitions and that each of the coalitions have been given a responsibility to follow, on, to follow up on specific action points and make sure that come 2025, we have addressed the gaps that our perspective of the uh, HIV prevention roadmap has been addressed. We have got some funding uh, from uh, Frontline that we're going to use to support our colleague, the civil society organizations, to make sure that they're, all, uh, they're present in all the relevant spaces, uh, like technical working groups, uh, any meetings that is being convened that is addressing some of the issues to make sure that we are using those spaces to voice up and see whether things are working or not working. So unlike in the past, this time around, uh, we have committed to say we are going to be there and make sure that at every point we are ticking the box and say this has been done. We'll be in the offices, we'll be everywhere to make sure that this commitment uh, has uh, been achieved. And uh, very shortly, I think each and every of the countries is going to be launching. And the launch, again, is going to be used as an advocacy platform mm. to tell the nations that government committed to do this and the civil society, we're standing up to make sure that that is done. So the launches are also going to help us uh, to uplift and uh, uh, magnify the work that we're going to be doing. And the government and the donors and everybody is going to understand that this is for HIV prevention, not uh, for somebody to feel like we are toy-toying or we are just making noise for nothing uh, because there's a tendency to look at civil society as uh, always making noise uh, just against a marriage. But we are saying we want to end AIDS by 2030 and we want to make sure that the targets for 2025 are achieved. So this is what we're going to do and it's going to be not an easy job, but we are geared for it and we're ready to work with the government and engage with them to influence these decisions. Wow, brilliant. Um... I, I'm, I've got to say, I'm really inspired by both of you. And wow, Leora, it does just go to show what an incredible partnership Frontline AIDS really is. What happens now? What's next? So this, uh, these reports have been done as part of a program called United for Prevention. And essentially, as Simon mentioned, uh, the program um, is resourced to support all of the organizations in all of the countries to try and implement um, the findings and, and try and do activities to get the recommendations achieved, essentially, 
to get each country closer to the targets. Um, from a frontline AIDS perspective, we will uh, continue to support partners to do this. But the key element here is around national advocacy and um, people, passionate, amazing people like Simon and Lillian and the rest of the other partners um, of the other countries doing the work in country and speaking to government and stakeholders. But um, on a global level, we will most definitely also take these reports to spaces such as ICASA, um, where we're launching, uh, we're launching all the nine African reports, um, and basically, you know, showcase um, the stories of these communities and these civil societies, and demonstrate the hard work that the frontline AIDS partners have done, but also tell the stories that traditional reporting doesn't tell um, around the status of HIV prevention, and speak to donors and relevant um, institutions to try and move that change on a global level. So I'm, I'm going to um, <clears throat> put you on the spot here because I don't know the, uh, how, what the acronym of ICASA actually stands for, but it's the big African AIDS conference in 2023 happening in Harare, yes? Yes, um, the 4th to the 9th of December in Harare, yes. And, so our and... launch is on the 4th of December. Okay, cool. And... Um... The International Conference on AIDS and STIs in Africa. Yeah, there we are. Um, <laughs> I confess I needed some help in in remembering that book. Ah, well, great. Well, I guess we have come to the top of the hour. And um, I got to say, I know the report, the accountability reports are very somber, very serious. But I got to say, what a tonic. What a um, sense of enthusiasm and optimism, um, I think, particularly Simon and, and Lillian, you're offering us. Um, yeah, things are tough, but we really do have a path forward. So um, it just remains for me to thank you all very much. Um, a Shot in the Arm will be podcasting from um, the conference in Harare, and I hope we'll get a chance to see you there. Um, so with that, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. So, well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much to Simon, to Lillian, and of course, uh, my co-host and partner in crime, Leora. Thanks also to our director and producer, Eric Espera of Newsdog Media. Thanks to the Frontline AIDS team, Ali Liu and Suzanne Fisher-Murray. Um, thanks to uh, um, the Global Listening Project, which hosts A Shot in the Arm. Um, and finally, a big thanks to you. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe, give us five stars, and encourage your friends and family during this holiday season um, to sign up. Uh, subscribe, it's free. Um, and so it just remains for me to wish you a safe week and a great week, everybody.